Good morning. Allow me to open up by sharing a story that happened about two weeks ago with Iris. So after a hard day's work, I go pick up Iris at the house that she's staying at during the day. And uh, to make the 40 to one hour drive bearable, we have to keep Iris entertained. I have to keep Iris entertained. So from about, what does it say, Halloween onward, she would always point out the things that she sees as we're driving. And some of you have also seen that as she sees some decorations around here and she'll point and really excitingly yell out, look, a pumpkin, or look, a turkey. What makes this season great is that there's so much that I can give her to look at, right? If we make this little list, I'm like, hey, and on our drive home, let's see if we can find a couple of things and point them out. I always pass by the same fire station, so I always point out the fire trucks, which she loves so much. I always point out the Christmas lights, the reindeer, the snowmen, and the Santa. But I always, always remind her as well, don't forget that the most important part is baby Jesus. So let's look for baby Jesus as we drive. Now, about two weeks ago, throughout the whole trip, Iris kept repeating the same question. Daddy, where's baby Jesus? Baby Jesus, where are you? She would call out. And for almost 40 full minutes, this is all I heard in the car. It's like, Daddy, we saw Santa, but where's baby Jesus? But where's baby Jesus? In these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the incarnation of Christ, baby Jesus himself. And we have to remember that he is the most important reason for Christmas. He is the reason for Christmas. And I like to look at a odd passage that essentially encompasses the whole message of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And it's odd because it doesn't seem very obvious at first glance. And it might be a passage that everyone tends to skip because all it is is a list of names. So let's open up to Matthew chapter 1. And let's read the first 16 verses. And if I butcher a name here, I apologize, but some of these are very difficult to pronounce and they're not very common. So I'll give everyone a little bit of time to be able to, to open up to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll read the first 16 verses. This is the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Ibiad, Ibiad, the father of Iliakim, Iliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, 
Achim the father of Iliad, Iliad the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathen, Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. For a lot of people, this has to be one of the most boring parts of the New Testament. I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year, you get to a couple of books that seem to be uh, books that are very complicated to get by. They're hurdles, such as the book of Numbers and Leviticus, because all it is is just numbers and um, a lot of lists like this, and Chronicles. But what's interesting about genealogies is that it tells us a lot about this person's family tree, obviously, but also in the case of Jesus Christ, it points to him. Now, we don't have time to look at all these 40-plus names. Or would I want to do that? Because that would take years for us to do, to go in detail in these people's stories. And it'd also be very unfair to people who are not very familiar with Scripture, because there's a lot of names that I believe many of us, as Christians for many years, have no clue who they are. <laughs> and some, we don't even have any information. So I would really like to concentrate more on the, the first few names here in this genealogy, and show how they point to Jesus and how are their life experiences that these people had that not only foretell Jesus' coming, but what Jesus Christ is going to do on the cross as well. So the first person we see in this genealogy is Abraham. And Abraham is curious because in Genesis, we see that he is called by God in Genesis 12.1. says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go out from your country, your relative, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And I think this is just enough for now. We can continue to read through chapter 12 as it shows the blessings that God is, is going to tell Abraham that he's going to go to this land that he, he will have for his own, for his whole descendants. And that his descendants will not just bless themselves, but they'll bless the whole world. That's already a foretelling to Jesus. But what's interesting about this is that Abraham is a prototype of Jesus as well. Jesus, when he incarnates, he leaves his comfort zone in the presence of God the Father and decides to step into human history. When we read in Genesis chapter 126, when God is creating man, he says this, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. That's Genesis 126. Who is God talking to here? Some people would like to say, oh, it's the angels. But then we read in the Old Testament how some of these angels look like. And some of them are eyes that are within rings that are spinning really fast. And no one here looks like that. Some of them are angels with three sets of wings. And I think, I guess we all have been plucked because no one has wings here. And others have various different faces of different animals. We look nothing like the people that are mentioned there. But God here is talking within himself in the plurality of God, which is a simple concept that's very deep and hard for us to get our minds wrapped around, that, that God exists as God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three distinct people. And that's who he's talking to. When we get these little pictures of how the throne of God looks like and how God is working all together, it's crazy. We read in Job how angels are worshiping God, and there's a lot of busy work being done there, and God is being served and worshiped by the angels. And Jesus was there with God. And you would think that him being there, he would just say, let me stay here. I'm comfortable. I'm good. But that's not what Christ did, did he? He decides to put all that aside, as we heard this morning, and to take on flesh. Because for us to be saved, Jesus Christ had to, had to die, had to take on flesh and die. The immortal God had to die, like John was saying earlier today in the Lord's Supper. 
which points us to Isaac. Genesis 22, starting in verse 9, says this. When they came to the place God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood on it. Next, he tied up his son Isaac and placed them on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife, and prepared to slaughter his son. But the Lord's angel called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Do not harm the boy, the angel said. Do not do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, because you did not withhold your son, your only son, from me. Abraham loved God so much that he was willing to sacrifice Isaac. We read later on in scripture that Abraham knew since God promised that through Isaac, he would be blessed. He knew that even if he were to kill Isaac, Isaac would be brought back from the dead. But God didn't have that luxury, now did he? He had to see his son suffer. He had to see his son die. He had to kill his own son. We read that Jesus Christ took the wrath, the full wrath and anger of God, which points us actually, Judah is a, and is a great example of this in the Old Testament that points to this. If you, if you don't know the story of Judah, this one may require a little bit more explanation. Judah is Isaac's grandson. So he's Abraham's great, great grandson. He's the son of Jacob. Judah was not the oldest son, but Judah was one of the more influential sons that Jacob had. Jacob had a favorite son. And uh, he made sure that everybody knew that Joseph was his favorite to the point that he gave him a very pretty coat. He treated him differently and he would boast about his son whenever he could. This angered all the other young men, of course, to the point that they wanted to kill him. Judah is the one who comes up with this idea that instead of killing Joseph, why don't we just sell him, make a profit out of it? And he was the one who convinced his brothers to sell his dad's favorite. But later in life, his youngest brother, Benjamin, is um, set up by Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph, which is interesting. But he's set up. And um, Benjamin is found guilty of stealing from one of the rulers of Egypt. And Judah does something that he thought he would never do. He asks to be put in place of the guilty person. He asks to take Benjamin's place. What a beautiful picture of what Christ does on the cross. Christ willingly made himself guilty to take our place. He made it so that he would have to suffer all of God's wrath and anger on our behalf. He did that so that we can have a second chance at life. He did that also for, for another deep reason, which is the next name here on the list, which is Boaz. For us to get the full story of Boaz, we'd have to read the, the book of Ruth. It's four chapters. You get done pretty quickly uh, on your time home. But what makes Boaz so interesting is that he is considered a defender, or there's another term for this, a redeemer. And a redeemer, it's somebody who buys back something that is rightfully theirs. Let that sink in. Boaz bought back Ruth and everything that she owned so that Ruth's original husband can have continue to have a legacy. But Boaz did that. He bought back something that was rightfully his. Christ's death on the cross is a redeeming death. He bought us back. We were slaves to sin. We were walking about doing whatever we wanted. And Christ gives us newness of life. His death on the cross bought our freedom to worship God and to enter in God's holiest of holies. We read in the Old Testament how 
There was a curtain that separated God, the holiest of holies, from the rest of the temple. And only one person was allowed to go. And even then, he had to have a string attached around his waist just in case he wasn't fully purified. He would die there and they'd have to pull him out. And through the death of Jesus Christ, that veil is torn. And we have access to this wonderful place, which is the direct presence of God. And that is all done through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross. Then we have King David. A lot can be said about David. <laughs> That's why he's in so many books, starting in 2 Samuel. But David not only is a shepherd, as we see Jesus Christ allude to himself being the shepherd, the good shepherd, who knows his flock by name. He knows each and every one of us. And it's not just knowing our name, but he knows about us. He knows what, what our dreams are. He knows what the best course for our life is. That's what this shepherd is. That's who Jesus is. He's willing to leave the 99 that are safe and sound alone to go and seek the one who is lost as well. One who has strayed away. And not just that, but David also points to the kinghood of Jesus Christ. Something that still hasn't been fulfilled. Something that we'll, we see is fulfilled in Revelations. And we are waiting eagerly to see. And we also have Solomon, David's son, also another king. And what's interesting about Solomon is how wise he was, not just his riches, but how wise Solomon was to the point where people would come from all over the world to just hear him speak, to hear him teach. And we see that in Matthew later on, we see people following Christ wherever he goes. And so it's so awesome in this genealogy, we have so many people who are pointing to the incarnation of God for the reason. And what's really cool and very particular about this genealogy is that it's not quite like the other ones in scripture. There are a couple of names here that stand out. And something I would like to alert us to is that not only did a lot of these people point to Christ, a lot of them were the reason why Christ had to come. Take Jacob, which to me, it's one of the more interesting Old Testament characters because God decides to give his blessing to Jacob. Jacob's name literally means to trip up. He was a con artist. He was somebody who was very deceiving and very sneaky. But Jacob didn't die as Jacob. He died as Israel. He had an encounter with God that totally changed his life. And today, God is doing the same thing too. He wants to encounter us, find, meet us where we're at, even to the point where he had to wrestle Jacob. I'm not sure if God's going to physically wrestle us, but I know that, at least in my experience, I have wrestled with God. In prayer, I have wrestled with God in other aspects of my life where I know what God's will is for my life. I have wrestled with him because either I don't want to do it because it's too difficult, or I don't think it's the best course of action. And truth be told, when we allow Jesus and God to do their thing in our life, it changes us. It changes us for the better. Jacob was no longer known as somebody who was deceiving, but he was known as somebody who wanted to love God and honor God. There's this beautiful scene in Hebrews where it says that Jacob went, leaned on his staff. And as he was feeling his staff, he was remembering all the things that God did for him. Jacob being a shepherd, anything that would happen, he would put a little notch on his staff as a reminder. God helped me through here. So imagine a Jacob, or in this case, Israel, at the end of his life, feeling that staff and remembering, oh, this was the notch that I put on there when my son was born. This was the notch that I put on there when the whole family was reunited, when the son that I thought was dead came back to life. What a beautiful scene. 
What a beautiful scene that we see here with Christ as well, that he gives us newness of life. In Ephesians, we read this before and this after, that before we know God, we live to our heart's desire. We do what we want. Where this might sound pleasing, we see that it's not. And we don't even have to look to scripture for that. Look all around us. The amount of people that are depressed, all-time high. The people that feel like their life is meaningless, all-time high. The people that feel like they don't live a fulfilled life, all-time high. And yet, in Christ Jesus, we see something totally different. Not only do we see newness of life, but we see a life that is fulfilled, a life that has meaning and purpose. Ephesians 2.10 is one of my favorite uh, portions of scripture because it really tells us that, that we are God's workmanship or God's masterpiece, but only when we're born again in Christ Jesus. So that he prepared good works that we all can walk on. If we really want to follow God and live a fulfilled life, we have to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. But not just that. We have to be willing to do what he prepared for us, to use our life story for his honor and for his glory. You might think that maybe you've done a lot of wrong in your life. Maybe you've done things that you're not proud of and that you're unlovable and that God wants nothing with you. If you look at this genealogy, you'll see a couple of people that are completely unlovable. People that are really strange, that society would shun and call them abominations. You see two prostitutes, Tamar and Rahab. And yet they're, they're put on by name. Not just that they're prostitutes, but they're also women, which that doesn't happen in genealogies. Which really tells us that God goes way beyond any social status. It goes way beyond, his love goes way beyond whatever you might think, whatever society might think. God is not looking at sexes. He's not worried if you're a man or if you're a woman. God is not looking at your social status because you have people here like Abraham who became homeless because he followed God's will. But then you also have kings like Solomon that his riches could not be counted. It doesn't matter what your social status is. It doesn't matter who you are, what society thinks you are. All that matters is that God loved you. And essentially, that's what drove Jesus to come on here onto earth. That's what made him incarnate. It was all with this mission in mind that he loved each and every one of us, that he died on the cross so that we may have a relationship with God and may live with him eternally. If you don't know Jesus, may this holiday season refocus your thoughts. May you come to him. May you accept his sacrifice, the greatest gift of all, that all started on Christmas morning or Christmas Eve when, when Christ was born. If you are saved, I don't know what your relationship with God looks like right now, but a lot of times even us that are saved, we're like Jacob or even King David, where we go our own way, we do our own thing, and we might lose the joy of our salvation for a season. But know that God hasn't changed. We have. Know that God still loves us. Just as much as the day that we were pure sinners, we were God's enemy. And he wants us to come back. And for those of us that are saved and are in good standing with God, just remember that this is a point for us to rejoice. That God loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us. And because of that, we now get to live this fulfilled and newness of life. Let's pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your love. And we see sprinkled throughout all of scripture from the Old Testament all the way to the New, how this was always a part of your plan, that Jesus would come to the earth and die on that cross for our sins. And you did that because 
You couldn't bear to live eternity without your creation, to honor and to, to be with you. So God, we're just so thankful for that. And this holiday season, as um, a lot of people are getting ready to meet with family, may we continue to remember that the most important thing about Christmas is baby Jesus and is the reason why he came. Amen.